Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, ready to learn more about heaven? Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Let's pray together. Father, we have learned so much over the past 15 weeks, things that many of us either have never considered or heard before, or we're being refreshed and really it's sinking in to what it's going to be like, even though it's just in part the description of what heaven is going to be like. I pray, Lord, that with each week, with each discovery, the way we live on earth would reflect our eternal destination. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a woman who died after a long illness. And she died, and she went and stood before the pearly gates of heaven, and she was waiting for Peter, of course. And before Peter got there, she peeked her head in and saw how beautiful it was. And by the time Peter got there, she said, Wow, this place is really fabulous. How do I get in? Peter said, Well, you have to spell a word. She said, okay, what word? Peter said, spell the word love. She thought, and she said, okay, L-O-V-E. Welcome, Peter said. You're admitted into heaven. So she gets there. She loves it. She spends six months there. And one day Peter found her and said, look, I'm going to be out for the day. Could you just take my position just for the day at these gates? So she was watching the gates of heaven one day. And her husband arrived at the heavenly city. And she turned and said, Honey, what a surprise to see you. How have you been? And he said, Oh, I've been doing pretty well since you died. I married the beautiful young nurse who took care of you while you were ill. Then I won the lottery. And I sold our little house that you and I lived in and bought a huge mansion. My wife and I traveled all around the world. We were on vacation and I went water skiing today. I fell, the ski hit my head, and here I am. And then he said, how do I get in? And she said, well, you have to spell one word. He said, okay, what's the word? And she said, Czechoslovakia. (laughs) Aren't you glad that our salvation and therefore heaven is by God's grace, not by having to answer a question or spell a word or do a work, but we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb without spot or blemish. Getting into heaven and getting others into heaven ought to be our primary goal in life. After all, it's forever we're talking about. And That's where Revelation chapter 21 comes in. Revelation chapter 21, there is a a shift in dimension. We leave time altogether and we shift into the eternal dimension. In verse 6, God who sits on the throne says, It is done. That immediately takes our mind back to Jesus on the cross who said, It is finished. This is after all of redemptive history is over and God can now say, it's done. Everything I've wanted to accomplish is over, including the salvation of souls, 
including the judgment of the world, including the consignment of Satan and those who committed evil with him, including the kingdom given to Israel for a thousand years. It's all accomplished. Time has run its course. The seven-year block called the tribulation is past. The thousand-year kingdom, past. Time designations like B.C. or A.D. are all gone. This is the eternal state. Now, I remember being in school, and the teachers would talk about time as almost linear. In fact, when, when we talked about people's lives, we would draw a line on a chalkboard, and little dots would represent periods in their life. So here's the line, and then you have the first dot, that's birth, and the next dot could be the person's marriage, third dot, kids, fourth dot, bankruptcy, fifth dot, death. And that's the life. And if you wanted to depict eternity, I suppose you just have the, the line go on and on and on, as if it's just time after time after time, when perhaps the best way to think about eternity is remove the line altogether. We're dealing with an entirely different dimension. Think about it. Our bodies are different at this point. The environment is different. There's no sun. There's no moon. There's no sea. There's no sorrow. There's no death there's no pain. Everything is new. That's why in verse 5, again, he said, Behold, I make all things new. So just keep this in mind. At this point, everything we know about this present life is gone. It's new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. This is forever. This is eternal. So what will this eternity now be like? What will this new city of Jerusalem be like? Chapter 21, we would say in real estate terms, is the walkthrough. This is the walkthrough to the new city of Jerusalem. He begins by giving us the elevation, an outside view, and then he proceeds to an inside view, which we'll get to next week. Today, we just want to get sort of the outside view, the splendor, the magnificence of our future home. Now, God has long desired for this city. This has always been his plan from the beginning. He says in Hebrews that Abraham longed for a city who, that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And this is that city. Okay, so as we go through it, keep this in mind. Architecturally, this is very different than any town you have ever seen. This is so modern. This is beyond modern. This is future town. This is the new Jerusalem. What I'd like you to do is open your Bible. You already already have it to chapter 21. And first of all, go back to verse 2 for a moment. Though principally, we're going to look at verses 9 through 21. Let's consider the making of this city. Because it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared. That's the word I want you to notice. It's prepared. And over in verse 10, it's descending out of heaven. So, obviously, thought has gone into this city. Planning has gone into this city. It's never going to outgrow its infrastructure. It's perfectly planned because it is prepared. Now, something we know about God, He's always prepared. He's never haphazard. When He first created this present universe, it wasn't haphazard. There were definite 
sequential days of creative activity where this came into view and this came into being, etc. And Jesus promised this. He said, In my Father's house there are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. So this is the place prepared. Now some people, because of this word, and because it descends out of heaven, sort of like a gift where God is saying, Here... Some believe that this has been prepared during the millennial kingdom, those thousand years on the earth. And there's a whole study that we could even delve off into there, but it's pure conjecture. We don't know if God instantly makes it or if it's prepared over a thousand years. But here it comes to the new earth. It is prepared. Just like hell is prepared by God for whom? The devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. So the new Jerusalem is prepared for all of God's saved people. It goes by the name New Jerusalem, but it has a couple of nicknames. Now, you know, a lot of cities have nicknames. New York is called the Big Apple. Chicago, the Windy City. Los Angeles, the City of Angels. Santa Fe, the city different, aptly named. These are nicknames. Well, the New Jerusalem is called, in verse 2, the holy city. In verse 10, the great city. In verse 11, having the glory of God. I remember the first time I was in my 20s when I saw the old Jerusalem, the one that is there now in Israel. It was so breathtaking. I don't know how to describe it, except I had the feeling that I belonged there. I had the feeling that I'd be back there again. A few years later, I had married Lenya, and I brought her there. And she looked at Jerusalem. Her first time of viewing it, she just wept. Different reactions, but breathtaking reactions. Nathan was just a little kid, and he saw it, and he said, Dad, Jerusalem's like our second home, huh? And there's all sorts of mystique and um, opinion and literature written about Jerusalem. There always has been. In the Jewish Talmud, the ancient sages used to say, God gave ten measures of beauty to the whole world. Nine of them were taken by Jerusalem, and one was dispensed through the rest of the world. They went on to say ten measures of knowledge was given to the whole world. Jerusalem took nine of them, and one was given to the rest of the world. But they also say ten measures of suffering has been given to the world, and Jerusalem has taken nine, and the rest of the world has taken that one. But the sages used to say of Jerusalem, he who breathes the very air of Jerusalem will become a wiser person. Now you know why I keep going back. I want it to rub off. It truly is, though, amazing and wondrous to stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, just stand there and look, just to take it all in, to look over the city with the Temple Mount and to think about its history and to imagine its future. Because Jerusalem has such a focal point in the Bible. I want you to consider this. Jerusalem is the geographic center of the earth biblically. Now hear me. There's a text in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, where God says, This is Jerusalem, 
I have set her in the midst or the middle of the nations and countries all around her. Right in the middle. If you were to look at a map, you'll discover that Jerusalem in Israel is located on a land bridge that connects Europe and Africa and Asia. North in the Bible is north of Jerusalem. When it speaks about south in the Bible, it's always south of Jerusalem. East and west, that same reference point. So it's the geographic center of the earth, biblically. But it's more than that. It's the salvation center of the earth, spiritually. There's no other place on earth where the salvation of souls has been purchased except just outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha. Remember the little conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well of Samaria? And she's arguing about places. And she says, you know, we we worship in this mountain, but you Jews say Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you don't even know what you worship. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. It's the salvation center of the earth spiritually. Third, Jerusalem is the storm center of the earth prophetically. The Bible predicts a time in the book of Zechariah. It predicts a time when all of the nations of the earth will gather together against Jerusalem. And world leaders know this. They know that the hot spot to look at is the Middle East, especially what goes on in the city of Jerusalem. But fourth, Jerusalem is the glory center of the earth ultimately. Jesus Christ will come back for a thousand years. He will occupy the city and rule from the city. And He will fulfill Isaiah chapter 2. The law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. But all of that will take place and has taken place in the past and in the future up through the millennial kingdom. Now we're dealing with a whole new creation yet called Jerusalem. This is new Jerusalem. This is eternal Jerusalem. It's a city. Now, the fact that it's a city tells us something about our eternity. It tells us that in our eternity, we're going to be very social. Some of you go, I don't like the idea of being in a city. I kind of thought heaven would be like I have like 52,000 acres all to myself and tell everybody else to bug off. Well, keep in mind, you're going to be in a redeemed body. You're going to think very differently than you do now. You're not going to be under the same pressure. And part of your eternal dimension will be a city. It will be very, very social. It's going to have all the advantages, all the culture. It'll have none of the disadvantages of modern cities. There's going to be no pollution, no garbage, no crime, no sirens, no traffic accidents. No one driving while they're talking on cell phones or putting makeup on. I don't know if you've seen a lot of... I've seen people do a lot of things while they should be driving. Now, consider with me the meaning of the city. Notice this description in verse 2. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What a description. Look over at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride 
the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. A strange way to describe a town as a bride. John is describing something visually. And keep in mind, John is, is just seeing this and writing down what he sees in this vision. And what he sees of this city is that it's pure, brilliant, bright, beautiful, breathtaking, graceful. And the description that he sees is it's like a bride. It's like a bride. Notice the word adorned in verse 2. It's the Greek word kosmeo. What word do we get from kosmeo? Cosmetics. It means to beautify or to make attractive. John is saying, let me just tell you something. This town is decked out. And when that city comes from the sky, it's like all of your attention is drawn like a bride. I've done lots of weddings now. I love doing weddings. Because I always tell people, I have the best seat in the house. I get to see the faces of people as the bride comes in. This is how a wedding usually works. First of all, everybody's attention is drawn to the platform as I come out with the groom. Because the groom's typically very nervous, kind of rubbing his hands, a little bit sweaty, shaky. Um, And then the bride is announced. There's a change of music. Everybody rises, turns backwards, and that bride, beautifully bedecked, comes down the center aisle. and Everybody looks at her. And then I'm often looking at the groom who's going, cool. There's only one wedding that I remember where the bride didn't get the center of attention, and that's because as soon as the groom saw the bride, he fainted. Now all of the attention was directed at the groom. Well, we got the guy back up. He looked at her again. He fainted the second time. (laughs) So the rest of the wedding, what a scene. He was seated while his bride was very aptly standing next to his side. This is John's description visually. The city is breathtaking. Also, I would say this is a description metaphorically. Now hear me. In the Bible, the closest relation on earth is a marriage relationship. It's where people really get to know one another in the most intimate way. And so very often, Paul included, would describe the relationship of God's people, the church, as a bride and a bridegroom. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he writes, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you, or engaged you, to one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And I think a few weeks back we told you that there's three different phases to the old Jewish weddings. First was the betrothal. It lasted a year. It was the the engagement process. At the end of that year, at some point, though they didn't know exactly when, the groom would show up at the bride's house unexpectedly, make his announcement, and take her from her house to his house, which brought us to the third phase. That was the wedding ceremony and then the marriage feast. Right now, we as the church, as God's people, are in phase one. We're spoken for. We're engaged. At the moment of our conversion, we're engaged to Jesus Christ, and we are waiting for Him to literally sweep us off our feet at any moment. 
in something called the rapture of the church, where he'll take us to heaven, to his kingdom. So, this is the courtship phase. We're getting to know him. Now, I will be honest with you, my own courtship was not the model you want to follow. I dated my wife for a couple months. I wasn't really sure about the relationship. I mean, I was Joe single. I just was a mess. And uh, I flaked out of the relationship. I didn't really communicate adequately with her. I just sort of didn't call her, just sort of walked off the face of the map and kind of left her wondering. And then after a couple years went by, the relationship was kindled up again, and I asked her to marry me. And even that didn't go very well. I wasn't like the the Mr. Romantic. Uh, I remember when I asked her to marry me, I was talking really weird. Like, you know, life is many roads and there's green lights and red lights. And you know if you should turn right or left. And she's thinking, what on earth is he telling me? And then she discovered, I think he's about to ask me to marry him. Now, I never remember popping the question, honestly. She said I did, but I don't remember asking her the question. What I do remember is kind of an interruption. She said, skip, skip, skip. I said, yes. I said, to what? (laughs) Well, you just asked me to marry you, and I said, yes, I will marry you. And I remember, this I remember. I said, now, wait a minute. This is a huge decision. We have to talk about this. I mean, I was so flaky. I guess I'm bringing myself up as the negative example to say Jesus Christ isn't flaky. He's absolutely sure. He's certain you're the bride for him. And he knows all about you and he still wants you. That's beautiful. That's love. Here's my question. Do you have a personal, close relationship with your groom-to-be like a bride-to-be should have? I'll ask it in another way. Are you flirting with the world? Are you going out on Jesus? Is there something in your life that needs to be eradicated, removed, cut out? Do you need to return to your first love, that first love of espousal? So I think this meaning here of the bride is simply to say, in this city, future town, your love with Jesus and for Jesus will be real, fresh, and absolutely complete. Best description, it's a bride adorned for her husband. Go down to verse 11. Let's read a few verses and note now the magnificence of this city. Notice, having the glory of God and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So four sides, three on each side, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. As I worked my way through the passage, which I did, I noted some very descriptive adjectives like holy, glory, great, high, clear, pure, precious, magnificent. I'll never forget my first view of New York City. I was in Hoboken, New Jersey. Ever seen the view from Hoboken looking toward Manhattan at night? It was 1 o'clock in the morning. 
Wow! It was brilliant, magnificent, sparkly. Now, in verse 11, it says, Having the glory of God. This, I believe, is the most significant feature of future town, of New Jerusalem. This is the most striking and overarching characteristic. God's glory is there. Now, John obviously wants to tell us about the light Because notice he says, and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, by reading that, I don't think you'll understand what he's saying. I want to help you. The word light here is the Greek word phoster, which means an illuminator or get this, a source of light, a source of light. Light is emanating from it. It's something in which light is concentrated and from which light is pouring out of. So it's not like, well, here's something really cool and light's bouncing off of it, ambient light from another source. John wants you to know that it's like this huge diamond with light cascading out of it, emanating from it. Notice it says it's like jasper. Now that may not help us. If you're a gemologist, you'll be a bit confused because modern jasper is an opaque stone. And notice what he says. It's like jasper stone, clear as what? Crystal. This is clear. And so most commentators will say probably what John was describing is a diamond because it's clear as crystal that an ancient jasper was very different than a modern one or it's simply an ancient description of what would be a diamond. It's clear as crystal. Now the best diamonds are the clearest diamonds. I've had a little education over the years, you know, being married. The first uh, diamond I ever bought was our engagement ring. I spent a whopping maybe two, $300 for it. And it, it had a diamond on it. They told me it did. I know that if you took a, uh, a little microscope or even a, 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 a little glass, you could see the diamond. It was there. But if you, if you put it under a microscope, because I saw it sometime later, it wasn't clear. It was more yellowy and a little bit opaque. And they told me it wasn't a great diamond. I Believe me, I've been educated. Um, diamonds that are good are clear. And the clearer they are, the better they are, and the more expensive they are. So I've gotten an education since then. Verse 12. Let's peek at this magnificent. Notice there's 12 gates, 12 foundations... And an angel posted at each gate. Now, the angel isn't to guard the bad guys. There are none present. And the gates are never shut, it will tell us later on. I see these angels sort of like ushers. Passing bulletins out. Greeting you as you leave. Hey, welcome home when you come there. If you're leaving for the day or for a million years, have a nice trip. But there's 12 gates and there's 12 angels, so you're going to get to know these guys pretty good or these beings pretty well. Now, it gets, gets more wild. Begin with me at verse 15, and I want you now to consider the measurement. How big is this place? Let's look at it. Verse 15. And he who talked with me had a gold reed. That's a measuring stick. To measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square. Mark the word square. I'll get back to it. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 
furlongs, or stadia in Greek. Its length, its breadth, and its height are equal. So it's a cube. And then he measured the wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. So obviously the Spirit of God wants us to know how big it is because we're given an exact measurement. Now notice it says it's square. The Greek word is tetragonas, or four-cornered, a perfect cube, a tetragon, a perfect cube. Now a furlong is 600 feet, or an eighth of a mile. 12,000 furlongs is 1,500 miles. So he's looking at something in his vision that the angel says, let me tell you how big this baby is. It's 1,500 miles wide, it's 1,500 miles deep, and it's 1,500 miles tall. It's a perfect cube. I was studying the Old Testament a little bit this week, and I discovered that the, the cube goes all the way back, at least in my thinking, to a little room in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. It, too, was a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God dwelt with His people, was 15 feet wide, 15 feet deep, and 15 feet high. This is like that on steroids. 1,500 miles as a cube. Notice the walls, verse 17. They turn out to be 72 yards or 216 feet. Now notice it doesn't say that's how high they are. They may be that high or they may be 216 feet thick, deep. After all, this is a 1,500-mile city. 216-foot thick walls is not a big deal. Why are they there? For protection? No, you don't need any protection. I think for adornment, not for security, but for beauty. Walls look cool. Now, the whole point of this is, if I can be so base as to paraphrase it, John is saying, God's town is really huge. And we're given the measurements. 1,500 miles. You know how far that is? That's from Maine to Florida. That's from Dallas to Philadelphia. That's from Albuquerque to Spokane. If you were to drop this city, given its measurements, in the United States, it would go from Canada to Mexico. It would go from the Appalachian Mountains to the border of California. Absolutely huge. There would be 2,250,000 square miles. That's just the first level. Remember, it's high as well as that deep. It would be 40 times the size of England, 10 times the size of France, or Germany, 15,000 times bigger than the city of London, and that's just the first level. You put all the levels together, you have something the size thereabouts of our moon. It's huge. Erwin Lutzer, who wrote a book, One Minute After You Die, said this. Now, this city could be composed of 396,000 stories at 20 feet per story, with each area as big as one half of the United States... That's each level. Divide that into separate condominiums. You have plenty of room for all those who have ever been redeemed since the beginning of time. Okay. James McDonald, who did a little thing on heaven, said, If today we went by the modern grid, there's 10 to 12 city blocks per mile. Okay. This is all supposition, but it's fun. 
you go with a standard grid, 10 to 12 city blocks per mile. That means you could have 45 million miles of road. That's just the first level. That means you could have 675 billion miles of streets. Now, don't worry. These are safe streets. These are clean streets. Verse 21, they're of gold. They're clean. Let's talk mansions for a moment, shall we? Let's say you have four mansions to a street because everybody gets a corner. We want the, the corner lot. You get a view. You'd have more than one billion mansions on the first level. So let's say you get to heaven. You go, I'd like the mansion tour. And you could go to Beverly Hills. You want to take the mansion tour? You get to heaven. I want to take the mansion tour. Well, if you saw 60 mansions an hour, 12 hours a day, it would take you 6 million years to get the mansion tour. So I think Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He had all this in his mind, and he gives it to John in the book of Revelation. And that's not meaning that we're all going to be there all at the same time because there's gates and people coming and going and there's a whole new earth and new heaven and we're going to be in new bodies. And if you remember back in that study, we're able to move not just horizontally but vertically. And so guys like Henry Morris, a scientist, assumes that with this cube configuration, there's going to be vertical as well as horizontal passageways. Let's close this off, verse 18 to 21, with the materials of the city. Okay, this is all what John is seeing. This is so cool. And the construction of the wall was of jasper. Remember, that's clear as crystal, like a diamond. And the city was pure gold, get this, like clear glass. Now, I don't know if you're having trouble like I am and have been trying to get my mind around this description, but it defies description. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Well, obviously, human language comes short in describing our eternal dwelling. I don't care if you use Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew or English or Spanish or German. Human language falls short. This is what he saw. This is what it looked like to him. But this is sort of hard to figure out, right? I mean, look at this. The city was pure gold like clear glass. That doesn't make sense. Ever seen gold like that? Gold is opaque. You can't see through it. It has a very dense, high specific gravity. But it's like clear glass. This is translucent or even transparent glass. Now, you might hear that and complain, man, there's no privacy in heaven. Like, you have anything to hide in heaven? You won't care. You'll be in a brand new environment with a new resurrected body. Look at some of these stones. Sapphire. That's blue. Now just listen to this description. Chalcedony is greenish blue. Emerald, a deep green. Sardonyx is white with reddish brown streaks going through it. Sardius is blood red. Chrysolite, yellow. Beryl is sea green. Topaz, yellow green. 
Chrysoprase is a golden apple green. Beautiful. Jacinth is deep violet. Amethyst, a rich but lighter purple. Just, it's, it would make the rainbow look dull. So magnificent. Keep in mind, light is emanating from the city. Verse 21 is where we close. I want you to get this. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Now listen, each individual gate was of one pearl. And the streets of the city pure gold like transparent glass. No doubt, verse 21 is where we, we get the whole idea of the pearly gates of heaven. But these aren't just pearly gates. Each gate is a solid pearl. Now, let's just say the walls are 216 feet high, 72 yards. Let's just take that as that's how high they are. Imagine a pearl 216 feet high. Must have been some big oyster. (laughs) Of course, this is a God-made new creation. Now, I, I looked at this and I thought, you know, there could be no more perfect symbol to represent the entrance into God's presence than a pearl. And here's why. You know how a pearl is formed? It's formed by an irritant. A foreign body gets into an oyster, like a little piece of sand, and it irritates the oyster. And the oyster's response to the irritation is a pearl. It sends out this fluid called nacre, N-A-C-R-E, and it covers the sand, and then it covers it again with that luminescent flesh that hardens into a beautiful pearl. So a pearl is a precious stone formed by suffering caused from an outside source. That's an apt apt emblem, is it not, of entrance into the eternal city. Because what injured Jesus Christ? Our sin. We are the irritant that God made beautiful so that going in and going out of that city forever and ever, we will be reminded of this truth that access to glory is only through Calvary. Only by the cross, only by our sin which irritated Him that has been cleansed and we made beautiful to stand in His presence. By the way, that's the only way you get into heaven is with that truth. It's the only way you see the kingdom of heaven. There's nobody in heaven who has never come to a place where they said, I'm a sinner, and I need forgiveness of my sins, and I need salvation that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nobody proud in heaven. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Theirs, they will be comforted. There was a little boy. He was obnoxious, precocious, bugged his mom. One day his mom just said, look, how do you expect ever to get into heaven? He said, well, thought about it. I'm just going to go in and out and in and out and in and out. Keep slamming the door every time I go in and out. And somebody's going to say either stay in or stay out and I'll get in. There's a lot of people who think getting to heaven is that easy. Actually, for us, it's very easy. For him, it was very costly. The thing that makes it hard for us is we have to humble ourselves and admit 
My sins are an irritant. They need to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed. I must come to Christ His way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You love people. You love people enough to build something like this. You've made this earth. It's inhabitable. Every day in the creation around us is a gift. And oh, what a gift. Like this huge box, this huge present that comes out of the new heaven toward the new earth called New Jerusalem. How magnificent. Breathtaking. It's a gift that has to be received and it's received here on this earth while we have the ability to choose our destiny, choose our future. And we remember the Lord Jesus said, very few enter therein. And very many are on the road to destruction. And so, Lord, with each message on heaven, our supreme desire is that not only will we be there, but that others that we know and love, maybe that we've invited to church, will also be there. So we pray for them. Pray for them just now. We pray, Father, for those who may be sitting here today who have yet to make a commitment to Christ yet to invite Christ in as Savior and as Lord. We pray that that issue would be settled now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.